All right, I want to invite you to James chapter 5. We're plowing away. Um, we'll try to land James here in the next few weeks, probably after the holidays. Um, and I, um, I want to encourage you. And I've already hinted at it. I think I said it somewhat last week. You're going to be in places with people that don't know the truth of Christmas. They don't really even understand Christianity. And for some of you, you're going to be in spaces and places with people that you call family, and it's not fun. It's just not fun. Because of the dynamics of your home and the relationships that exist, maybe the convictions, uh, maybe political differences, but certainly potentially theological differences, lifestyle differences, family patterns that have long existed that will emerge when you get together. Some of you are going, man, I can't wait to enjoy time with my family. Some of you are thinking, God, help me survive my time with my family. <laughs> it's hard. And what I want to argue for today, contextually, as it relates to Christmas and that reality and the passage we're going to look at again today. You can be a difference maker at Christmas with your family because you're different. Because you change the dynamics. You know, when you get back with family or friends, you tend to fall into patterns that have existed for a long time. Everybody knows everybody's triggers, everybody has history, and there's this potential for you to kind of re-engage the way you've always engaged. But it doesn't have to be that way. I actually want to encourage you this holiday, presuming you're going to be with people that are a bit of a challenge to you, in Contexts that are not always healthy or helpful. I want to encourage you to be a difference maker and an impact player as a follower of Jesus Christ because you're different. Whatever your pattern has been, I want to ask you to consider adopting a new one. For the sake of gospel influence, Christian influence, real impact, for culture change in your world. When I did the year-end devotional a couple, well, I guess a week ago or so, two weeks ago, um, at the university, I highlighted a story that I really didn't know. Karen and I watched a movie called The Man Who Invented Christmas. Anybody know that movie? Okay, it's the story of Charles Dickens, the author of The Christmas Carol. You know The Christmas Carol, that kind of written by Charles Dickens. And what got my attention after I watched the movie, because, I mean, what title? The Man Who Invented Christmas. Man didn't invent Christmas. But what they were saying is the celebration of Christmas as you know it, the headline of the story that I previewed was, other than Jesus Christ, Charles Dickens has influenced your celebration of Christmas more than any other man. That's a big statement. And then he went on to say that when Dickens wrote his book after three flops of book writing novels, in maybe six to eight weeks, he generated this book which involves ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. At that time, Christmas wasn't celebrated much at all the way you're going to celebrate it. And he was highlighting, or some historians highlight, the influence that Dickens culturally. Number one, Christmas carols had fallen out of favor. Carolers didn't travel around caroling. But after the Christmas carol, that became a tradition. Paid time off at Christmas didn't happen during the Industrial Revolution. But after the Christmas carol, people got time off. The menu, turkey, cranberry sauce, the traditional stuff that represents most of your menus, and I know we're in a diverse community here, and some of you could care less about turkey, but 
turkey and the fixings that go with a traditional meal became a part of menus and cookbooks in England that have influenced all the way to, to today Charles Dickens' influence. Christmas trees? Yeah, 1840, they came over from Germany, but nobody used them until 1843 when Dickens wrote his novel. So if you like Christmas trees, thank Charles. If you like caroling, thank him. If you like generosity and charity giving went up off the charts because of a Christmas carol. So this whole idea of goodwill, generosity, kindness, it was actually a pagan kind of holiday before the book was written. That's at least where it had evolved to. But one man, and I'm going back to the leading title, one man changed the culture of Christmas. You know who else can do that? You can do that. Because you are, and I know you've never heard me say this, you are salt. And anything you're in or on, if you're potent as a Christian, you influence. Salt anything. And it impacts it if the salt is potent. So as you kind of enter into the holiday, I want to ask you as one of your elders season, is intentionally say, God helping me, I'm going to change the culture of the community I worship with, celebrate with, relate to. Because people, humanity, in close proximity, which is what Christmas does, you eat together, you do stuff together, because of depravity, the fallen nature of man, the default spring-loaded self-interest pattern. Humanity in close proximity because of depravity, because of our natural tendency, often results in injury. And the passage we're looking at today involves what to do when you've been done wrong. How do you respond as a real follower of Jesus Christ when you're mistreated, when you're violated? You could argue this passage is straight up about abuse and mistreatment. And it's of a horrific kind. It's not light. It's weighty. Because chapter 5, 1 through 6 is about materialists, people that are wealthy, who are not using their assets to relieve the needs of others. They're not stewarding it. They're hoarding it. And they're using it for themselves, ignoring the needs of others. And they also acquire it. They don't just misuse it and waste it. They abuse to get it. Notice what it says in verse 4. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. Day laborers who were relying on income every day to survive, you've withheld it. Verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. Good people. You have, by misusing your assets for your own satisfaction, you've lived luxuriously a wanton seeker of pleasure, and you have abused and been dishonest in order to acquire what you consider to be the idol of your life, this false god of stuff and material goods, money. Verse 7, therefore, do you see that? Therefore connects what was just said, the righteous man who's been condemned... The good man who's been taken advantage of, abused, mistreated, and it says condemned to death. Therefore, be patient, brethren. And with these verses, which we're in today, we're going to focus mostly on verse 12. Verses 7 through 12 argue for what does a person who's been mistreated, who's a Christian, Suffering abuse and mistreatment, dishonored 
being taken advantage of, hurt and injured, maybe catastrophically in terms of influence and impact. What does that person do? Doing right when you've been done wrong is distinctively Christian. If it's done in the ways prescribed by the pattern of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, as well as those, as well as those who have honored his modeling and his example. Four things. Two positive ones. Two, don't do this. Verse 7, we noted it last time, be patient. Verse 8, you too be patient. Being patient, urgently and resolutely exercising restraint. Resist the reaction to do what people normally do. Retaliate. Balance the books. This is a direct and clear call and command to exercise patience. The first requirement in the face of hurtful and dishonorable mistreatment is the exercise of restraint. And I called you to wait. So the cutting word, the miss kind of treatment that you may experience over these days. Karen was telling me she went to the post office to mail something this week, and she's standing in line in the beautiful little community of Santa Clarita. And uh, she leaned over to the little desk thing to write something on the envelope, and uh, she she went from here to here. And the guy behind her said, so you're thinking that's your place? (laughs) It's my wife. I mean, she's... First of all, she's a woman. Second of all, it's the post office. But it was said so unkind. Whatever you did, you give up your spot. Who does that? I'll tell you what, people do that, right? I'm just glad her husband wasn't there. (laughs) Or somebody else would be qualified to teach this because I couldn't. But what is it that you want to do when people violate you like that? You certainly don't want to be patient. That is exercise restraint. Verbally, actually resist the tendency to do what you want to do. That was the main point. And why would you do that? Because you know that the justice is coming which is the point of verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient like a farmer who waits patiently on God for the installments of the rain that will produce a needed harvest so the Christian can and must wait for God to faithfully and ultimately bring the desired harvest of justice. Hey, listen. I want to execute justice. I'm just not qualified. He's qualified. Will he fail at his task? He will not fail. Wait. Trust God to do what God... He doesn't have to correct this situation that you're experiencing around the dinner table. He doesn't have... You don't have to deal with all of the injustices and make it right. You don't have to argue why. You can wait. Restrain yourself. Now listen, in order to do that, you have to be connected to God. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Patience. Same word, macrothemel, long-fused. The effect of connecting with God on a daily basis, abiding, walking in the Spirit, step-by-step, submitting, following, living, connecting, the effect, the fruit, one of the leading edges of your Christianity is your ability to restrain yourself and the ability to, to not respond or react or to retaliate requires a power greater than your own. You need the power of God in your life. So if there's no connection, daily pursuit of God and consistent following of God, step by step, walking in the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the requirement of doing right when you've been done wrong. 
The second thing that positive one in this text we highlighted last week is you too be patient. Here's the second main verb, strengthen your heart. Strengthen your heart just means strengthen your convictions. It has the idea of you gathering reasons, convictional reasons, in the name of the Lord. We counted those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So just look at previous examples. Guys better than you, gals better than you, who endured more than you. They did it well. God rewarded and blessed them. You respect them. Be influenced for good by them. And then there's Job. The blessing and goodness of God at the end of Job's life is an example of how God deals with faithful people who endure loss and suffering well. Be encouraged. Strengthen your heart. Recognize that God's going to deal with it. That's a convictional strength. I don't have to. I don't have to justify my opinion or my position. I don't have to argue and debate. I don't have to retaliate. God's got this. If God doesn't have this and that conviction is not clear to you, your heart is not strengthened with that, you have no chance of responding correctly when the abuse and the mistreatment occurs. God's got this. The first thou shalt not is verse 9. Do not complain. Don't moan and groan. Don't complain to each other about God who's allowed this or about the people who have done this. No grudges. Verse 9, same rationale. So that you yourselves may not be judged. Implication, and that is God will hold you accountable for responding in ways that dishonor his reputation, his name, and your claim. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Don't get impatient with God. God's coming. God's got this. Don't complain. And the idea includes your complaining and negativity contaminating someone else. So now your whole family's upside down with frustration because you are. It's no good for anybody. Your children are going to struggle to have a good time with whoever it is you're celebrating with because you're having a rough time. There is a contaminating effect, a toxic effect of negativity that comes from hurt people who aren't releasing that hurt to the Lord and resting in God's rule and God's justice. And if that makes sense, would you say amen? I'm just checking in with you. Say, why are you rehearsing this? You know why? Because this is different. This is distinctly different. This is supernaturally different. And do not misunderstand, I am not trying to coach you up like a halftime song. This is not reach down deeper. This is walk with God with the convictions that demonstrate the reality of God and the Christianity you profess in undeniable, culturally impactful ways. Verse 12. But above all, my brethren, righteous people mistreated, good people taken advantage of, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, if your Bible's like my Bible, verse 12 is bold-faced in terms of the number because it's indicating this should be considered to be a new paragraph. Whether you treat it like a standalone paragraph or not, what you cannot deny is the word but. But is a conjunction that connects to what's just been talked about. 
you could say, well, he's talking about above everything else in the book of James. Above it all, this is the highest. Well, that's a big claim to make because the book of James is populated by all kinds of priorities that feel pretty important compared to this one. I'm going to make the case with you that this directly and necessarily connects to what you do when you've been done wrong, or actually what you don't do. Just like you don't complain, you don't swear. You don't respond in a way with words that are injurious. It said, talked about this. Matter of fact, let's read it and then you can feel it. Because there could be an argument. You're saying this is about oath making. And you know what it is? It is about potential oath making. But the context rules. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. So you get that little flavor there in James. This is Jesus talking. Verse 35, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond that or these is of evil. So you can clearly see the connection. And the idea that you can use God by connections to God, things that he's made, things that are important, like the city of Jerusalem, Matthew 20, fingers crossed behind your back. Did did anybody relate to that? Who didn't relate to fingers behind your back? Okay, so most of you understand what I'm saying. But you're saying one thing, but you do not intend to do that thing because you're applying a principle that you've concocted to relieve you of the obligation. You're making a promise, an oath, a vow, but you don't intend to keep it, and you're using the basis of your claim, the temple, to relieve you of the burden that would happen if you'd use the altar or the sacrifice on the altar. Oaths were a common thing when it came to law-keeping, promise-making, using the name of God in a way that is not proper to God or something that symbolizes or is valued by God is forbidden. And the has to do with the way you keep the requirements of God. You make promises. And I don't want you to make these embellished promises. I want you to say, yes, I will, or no, I won't. This does not forbid you of putting your hand on the Bible and saying, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. This is not that. James chapter 5 involves making statements that do not have to do with law-keeping or vow-keeping, but promises of retaliating. And that was common in the Jewish culture. It was very common for a Jew to swear. And what James is saying, whatever you do, above it all, when you're dealing with mistreatment, do not do this. Yes, don't complain. Yes, be patient. Yes, strengthen your heart so you do all the above. But whatever you do, don't do this. Don't do what you are most prone to do when you're injured, which is retaliate with words. Commentator Gill writes this, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, As impatience should not show itself in secret sighs, groans, murmurings, and complainings, so more especially it should not break forth in rash oaths or in profane swearing. The Jews were notoriously guilty of this kind of swearing. 
And they often did not use the name of God because they knew enough not to do that. Therefore, they would swear by the heavens or swear by the earth. Having been injured, they would use a lesser thing that represents God, the main one. And the apostle here is forbidding these kinds of claims and oaths, swearing in common conversation in a way to reconcile the books, leveraging that relationship. And what this passage says, this is not acceptable. He does not forbid the taking of an oath. He forbids the making of an oath for the purposes of retaliation. So let me talk about what it is. This is a verbal condemnation. Jewish teaching said it was a verbal invocation. So you're actually as if you were talking to God calling out with powerful words as if you're some kind of a magician or sorcerer and can influence the powers that be. It had that idea. A verbal invocation to bring harm, evil, or detriment to another person. Rabbis consider this more than a threat or a wish. This is a curse assumed to have the power and authority to make the desired harm a reality. Because sometimes it would involve the name of God or something that represents God, heaven and earth, his creation. It would be the same thing as if we were saying, God damn you. Some of us will say that. Some of us will shorten it because we're not comfortable asking God to do that. We just want somebody to do that because you deserve that. And then we have coarse and profane speech where we'll use words, hurtful words. And I, I, I frankly cannot find it in myself to even give you an abbreviation of those words. But we're saying something harsh, hard, you. I hope this happens to you. You deserve that, and it's common in our culture. And you know what James is saying? Better not happen. It involves coarse and profane speech where you wish a, wish a very personal, hurtful ill will on them. And listen, it includes sign language. It is a verbal condemnation. Now listen to this. It's very important. Composed from a desire for real harm. With intense disrespect. Driven by frustration, hurt, anger. Listen to me. This is verbal retaliation. You've hurt me. And I'm going to hurt you back. And I'm going to deploy all in order to make good on my desire to deal with you. I was looking yesterday for some of the common things that Jews today or in the last century would say to one another that kind of has this flavor. And these, these were all kind of... And this is true. This is Yiddish curses. May all your teeth fall out but one so that you can still get a toothache. <laughs> Listen to number two. May you be so rich, your widow's husband never has to work a day. This is heavier than that. This is condemning and injuring. This is powerful and hurtful. And when someone gives you certain gestures or certain words which are so common in our culture, which I cannot say, but you know, it has a powerful and impactful detrimental effect on the soul of another person. And if you've been the recipient of such things, you know it's traumatic. 
It's hard to imagine, and I'm sure it's true, that you can get so numb and insulated or callous to it that it doesn't have the same effect. It just becomes part of the regular vocabulary. This is not talking about regular vocabulary. This is talking about hurtful and impactful verbal abuse because you've been abused. It also means to swear to God that I'm going to retaliate. It has the idea that, like on my mother's grave, I'm going to make you pay. It has that flavor, only you're using God or some instrument to um, symbolize God, something he's made. This is kind of the first Kings 19 when um, Jezebel threatened Elijah. Remember all the prophets of Baal were killed? Just listen to it, 1 Kings 19. This is that flavor. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab, Jezebel's husband, reports and says all of the prophets of Baal, your prophets, they're dead. And uh, Elijah's the guy that killed them because he called down the fire from heaven. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. So Jezebel's reaction to the destruction of the prophets that were killed with the sword, not just those that the fire came down, but the others that were killed by the sword in the land of Israel, this is what Jezebel said. May the gods deal with me, and ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the lives of those you killed. In essence, I'm going to injure you, I'm going to kill you, and God is my witness. So you have God, the one that you want to operate destruction on, the God damn you idea, and then you have God damn me if I don't do what should be done to you. So this powerful promise of revenge is what is being communicated. So let me summarize this way. This is a prohibition, and above all prohibition, to include all the words or sign language that communicates the same hurtful, judgmental, and retaliatory spirit that we are tempted to express when we are wrongfully and painfully mistreated. All right, that's my good summary, if it is good. It's my effort to summarize. This prohibition is to include all the words. Because you go, well, I don't use those words. Well, you have derivatives of words. You're a Christian, so you, you change the words. But the flavor of the words, the spirit of the words, is no different. God forbid you use those words, but don't think you get a pass for saying it's the temple that I promised by changing the words in terms of your commitment. So this prohibition is to include all the words or sign language that communicates the same hurtful, judgmental, because this is, you're being judged. I mean, the threat upon them is God's going to judge them. The threat upon us is God's going to judge us. You see that at the end of verse 12 of James chapter 5, so that you may not fall under judgment. There's accountability for everybody that communicates the same hurtful, judgmental, and retaliatory spirit that we are tempted to express when wrongfully and painfully mistreated. So this does not have to do with vow-making promises to God. This has to do with vows you make that supposedly encumber God or oaths you make that say, I'm going to deal with you and God's going to deal with me if I don't do what I'm threatening to do toward you. Swear not. All such swearing is forbidden. So what do you do? You say, what? Yes or no. That your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you do not fall under judgment. Now, I take this to mean you're saying yes. What, what I can say is you've done me wrong. 
Yes, you did me wrong. I'm not judging. I'm not condemning. I'm not retaliating. I'm acknowledging. I'm saying, yes, you have done me wrong. This is what happened or this is happening. Not the idea of, well, by God, this is the truth. So help me. Or using God as a basis, I swear this is the truth. This is the way it happened. No, yes, this is what happened. Simply put, not leveraging the person of God to validate your perspective or claim. Simply, yes, this is what happened. This is what is happening. And the idea of no has the idea of saying no. I can plainly state this. No, sir, this is not right. Just say that. This is not handicapping you from dealing with things that are harmful verbally. This is saying you're restricted to acknowledging what is and what isn't. This is what I saw this is what I felt. No, this is not what I saw. This is not what I believe. Patience is not silence, necessarily. Sometimes patience is silence. Sometimes words are meant are better if they're not used. I take this statement in verse 12 to say, don't amplify your words by making claims, I swear this is the truth. On my mother's grave or on God, by God, this is the truth. As if you're leveraging God's presence to validate your perception of the reality you're bearing witness to deal with the wrong in ways that you define or describe or somehow seek to empower or to leverage force to the other person. This is not right. So I want to close today with saying, why is this so strictly verboten? Do you know what that word means? Is Marco here? Marco not here. It's a German word. It's one of the few I remember from high school. Took two years of German. And verboten means absolutely legally forbidden. You can't do it. So why does God say, inspired with these words of James, but above all, why is this such a big deal? I'm going to give you a few things to think about to strengthen your conviction of why God would think this is a big deal. As we saw in chapter 3, so you can look there, verses 9 and 10, one of the reasons why swearing, cursing, responding in this way is so unacceptable is because it contradicts your claim as tongue and the restless evil and full of deadly poison, impactful, hurtful content. Verse 9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So don't miss this. The reason it's a big deal to God is because you're injuring someone who is made in the image of God. You say, well, they don't deserve to be called a human because they're not acting that way. No, you treat them as a creature made in the image of God. Verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. So this is a Christian claim who's blessing God but cursing men. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In other words, it's a contradiction. I'm a Christian. I claim to be a Christian. I ought to behave as a Christian, which is why Luke chapter 6 talks about our Christianity. We should love our enemies. We should do good to those who hate us and bless those who curse us. 
That's what a Christian does. If you love those who love you, what is that? Even the Gentiles who don't know God do that. What Christians do is what a non-Christian can never do. That's why it's a big deal. Look over at Romans chapter uh, 14, real, chapter 12 rather, Romans 12. We just want to let the verses strengthen our convictions, strengthen our heart with these words. Somewhere in my Bible is the book of Romans. Verse 14. This is the behavior that's commensurate with walking in a worthy way. Because of the mercies of God, this is how a believer is to live. Verse 14, chapter 12. Bless those who pute you. Bless and do not curse. Okay, in in our context, don't swear. Don't condemn them. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. That is, don't retaliate. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. This is the God who judges today and will ultimately judge someday. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You want to effect impactful influence? You want there to be conviction and the humiliation that comes when you go, you know what? Their goodness exposes my darkness. That's powerful. Do not, verse 21, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christians do the opposite. This is the first Peter chapter 3. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. You know what that is? Blatantly Christian. You know what happens when you swear, curse, and retaliate verbally and hurtfully? You contradict your Christianity. You actually misrepresent your Christianity. Number two, you usurp the role of God. This is chapter 4, 11, and 12, book of James, which we worked our way through. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. You're a judge of it. Verse 12, there is one lawgiver, one tutor and evaluator, the one who is able to save and destroy, not Harry, but who are you who judge your neighbor? So you usurp the role of God. We pridefully and disrespectfully assume his exclusive role for which we are not qualified. Which leads me to this third thing. Swearing violates the law you're judging by saying, I don't have to keep it. What law is in in view? James chapter 2, verse 8, the royal law of love. Verse 8, chapter 2, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This passage has to do with partiality. Chapter 5 has to do with verbal retaliation and injury. We violate the royal law of love. This is the third reason why above all is here. The highest law and the most Christ-like expectation and action of hell, not wish they go there. Number four, at the heart of this for sure, in this case and in this context, to swear in this way is to use God's name in vain by using things that represent him or by actually using his name, which Jews were reluctant to do, but sometimes would do. Using God's name in vain is no small thing. It dishonors God, and it dishonors us. 
Exodus chapter 20 says, God will not hold guiltless the person who takes his name in vain. You know what in vain means. It empties it of its weight. We treat it as less. We don't respect it. We flippantly use it or some derivative of it. And you profane, you empty it of its weight, really. You make it vain or meaningless. Showing improper respect. It's not only usurping his position, it's diminishing his station. You profane the name of God and his creation when you treat them in a way that does not recognize his image in them and does not recognize his station or position over them. Matthew chapter 5, you say raka, you call somebody a boneheaded, blockheaded fool, which is lighter than some of the words we use. You call me a blockhead or a bonehead, that's a lot different than some of the harsh, abusive, it's still hurtful. But if you're guilty of judgment for calling somebody a fool or a blockhead, how much more when you're leveraging your words, usurping authority that's not yours, employing a name that's not yours in a way that diminishes that name and diminishes the image of God represented in the person who God has made. Let me give you a fifth thing. Words have power and impact. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21. Hurtful words are often the fruit of being hurt. One of my favorite lines on the little book that deals with a big issue called anger by Ed Welch starts like this. To be angry is to destroy. That is such a sobering thought. Words stick. Some of you bear the impact of words spoken a long time ago. Don't be the engine or the source of such words. Words have power and impact. I don't know if you know this, but Proverbs 18.21 continues after it says life and death are in the power of the tongue. It says those who love it, the tongue, and the rightful use of it will eat its fruit. Do you know what the flip side of that is? Those who don't love the tongue, who don't use it in a fruitful way, so get to eat the fruit. So the hurtful words are hurtful. They can harm and contaminate you. Let me turn you back to Psalm 109, and I'll conclude with this passage. The last reason why you ought to and we ought to reconsider how we respond with verbal retaliation when we've been injured with words or mistreatment is the impact or the fruit of those words, not just on them, but on us. These words harm and contaminate you. Psalm 109, verse 17. He also, this is a bad guy, talking about the bad guy who persecutes and afflicts the needy man, verse 16. He's an abuser, verse 16, and the despondent in heart to put them to death. And verse 17 says, and he loves cursing. He loves swearing. He loves injuring with words. Now watch what 17 says. So it came to him, comes back to him, and he did not delight in blessing, so the blessing was far from him. So he curses, and like a boomerang, it comes back upon him. And the blessing he withholds, it never comes his way. It's far from him. Verse 18, he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment. Now watch this. And it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. Do you know what that's saying? It's like he's wearing toxic clothes that have been saturated in things that are destructive to him. And his garments affect his life and his health. So here's another good motivator to not swear. When you've done, been done wrong, do right. Don't swear because swearing is not only hurtful to the honor of God, it's not only hurtful to the person that bears the image of God, it's hurtful to the, per- the will of God by speaking in such hurtful ways. It is like water that enters the body, a toxin 
that enters the bones. The sin of swearing is condemned. But how many, says Matthew Henry, make light of common profane swearing? Such swearing expressly throws contempt upon God's name and authority, and this sin brings neither gain nor pleasure nor reputation, but shows enmity to God without occasion and without advantage. It actually shows a man to be an enemy to God, however he pretends to call himself by God's name or sometimes joins in acts of worship. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that uses his name in vain this way to the hurt and harm of others and themselves. End quote. So what do you do when you've been done wrong? You're patient. Strengthen your heart. You don't complain. And above all, you don't use this to swear, curse, and harm in retaliation for the hurt that has been done to you. Now listen, you go to Christmas table and all the stuff that happens in your life and you're a different person because you've strengthened your heart and you're walking in the spirit and you're not playing the same game and you're not responding in the same way because you're a different person. Let me tell you, your Christmases will be different. And you'll be the reason or cause for a new experience for some. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, so the next series of verses give you the last installment, I think, of what you do when you've been done wrong. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for all of us that we would walk with you so that we could display the nature that is distinctively Christian in a provocative good way that causes someone to pause, to cause someone to respond in a way that is convict conviction and, and consequential in a positive way. Lord, protect us and help us. Help us to do right when we've been done wrong. It will happen, and we need your grace to respond in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, Amen.